please turn to Job chapter 2. <coughs> Lord willing, we'll finish Job chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to go all the way up to Job chapter 7. So Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, that's where we left off last week. Now when Job's three friends heard of all the adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite. Now he's a, he's a very short guy. He's only a Shuhite. Every pastor tells that awful joke. And so far the Namanthite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar, they did not recognize him. They lifted their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. And they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. So we meet Job's three friends finally. Later on in chapter 2, we're going to meet another friend named Elihu, but today we're going to look at actually Eliphaz is going to open the conversation this morning. Now chapters 1 and 2 are written in a, a style of writing called prose or a narrative, and it's a direct form of communication. If you remember correctly, it was mostly a dialogue, a conversation between God and Satan. It's very straightforward. There's very little imagery in those words. It's pretty straightforward language. Chapters 3 to 36, however, are written in a style called poetry. So these words contain a lot of figures of speech, a lot of poetic imagery. And sometimes it makes it a little difficult to understand. So as we read through it, we're going to point out some things as with the writer intended for you to know. And then we're going to get to the end of the book. Now, we're going to go pretty quickly, Lord willing, through these 32 chapters or so, <coughs> covering four or maybe more chapters a Sunday, and that should be fairly easy to do. But then when we get to the conversation between Job and God, we want to slow down, and we really want to dig into that because there's a lot of, there's a lot of golden nuggets throughout the book of Job anyway, but even more so there. And I pray through all of this that you guys have a better understanding of who God is and, and what God is doing in your life. But first, Job's friends show up. And, and the first one to speak is Eliphaz, as you're going to look at in a few moments. So as they approach their friend Job, they notice from a distance. Now, this is how bad Job looks. This is what kind of shape he's in. From a distance, his friends already see that he's a mess. He must have been a sight to behold. He must have, I mean, think about this. He's got hideous boils covering his entire body from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. His skin at this point has got to be red and swollen from scraping it with a potsherd, right, with a broken piece of pottery. And so from a distance, they're looking at this guy and saying, is that mess sitting over there? Is that our friend Job? They can barely recognize him. And before we get as frustrated as Job is going to get with these three guys, it's important to point out some of their good qualities because they do have some good qualities. First of all, they came. They showed up. 
These are good friends of Job. They're there, and what makes them good friends is because they're there in trouble. And I could tell you that during adversity, during a trial, during a sickness, the easiest way to find out who your good friends are is who shows up, who's there for you. Nobody had to invite them. They heard about this tragedy, what happened to their friend Job, and they showed up to support him. Second, they wept for Job. They had empathy for their friend. Their heart broke for his loss. Good friends rejoice with us in the good times, and they weep with us in the times of trouble. Amen? Third, they sat with Job. They met Job where he was at. They sat with him in the city garbage dump, in the ashes. They sat there for seven days. They didn't care about their own comfort because they came to comfort their friend Job. Good friends, and the way we know that they're good friends, sacrifice their comfort for our comfort. And then fourthly, they sat in silence. They sat there with their friend Job for seven days in silence. Now, in the Jewish culture today, they call this sitting shiva. And sometimes that's the best way that we can minister to somebody in despair, to just sit and listen and weep and mourn with them and not say a word. And I remember a story of a, a fire chaplain who came upon a fire scene, and it was a, a house fire, and there was this grieving woman kneeling on her front lawn next to the bodies of her husband and her children. And the fire chaplain simply knelt next to her, put his arm around her shoulder, and wept with her, never speaking a word. Later at the memorial, the grieving woman thanked the chaplain for his kind and comforting words. He'd said nothing that day. Just his very presence and his deep empathy for her loss comforted her without saying a word. And listen, sometimes it's better if we don't say a word. We always think in times of grief that we need to say something, right? That's not true. Sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. And so... I pray, Lord, give me wisdom to know what to say, to know when to say it, but more importantly, give me wisdom to know when not to say anything at all. So his friends remained silent. And listen, it would have been a lot easier on Job had they continued to remain silent. But then we wouldn't have this amazing dialogue for these next few chapters, these next 30 chapters. So seven days have passed, seven days, seven nights, and Job speaks first. And what follows is going to reveal the state that Job's in, not physically, but mentally. He is in a severe state of depression, you're going to see. Turn to chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And this Job opened his after this, rather, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which I was in which it was said, a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. For that night may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come unto it. Well, there's a real pick-me-upper this morning, huh? Very encouraging. Job regrets the very day he was born. 
He regrets being born at all. His birth, and, and this is what's behind this, his birth, the fact that he was brought into this world at all, has led him to the day that he lost his children and he lost everything that he owned. It also led to this intense pain that he's suffering from right now, this throbbing, relentless pain from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And I can't stress this enough. This guy is in torture. He's in torture, both physically and mentally. Job's thinking, if I'd never been born at all, I wouldn't be suffering right now. And that's a pretty good assumption, isn't it? And he uses very descriptive language here to even describe his birth. He says, coming from the womb in, in darkness. He's in darkness in the womb. And then as he's born from the womb, he comes into the light. So he's describing his birth in that way. And it's a very poetic way of describing birth. But when you think about it, it also describes our new birth, doesn't it, in Jesus Christ. When we come out of the darkness of sin and into the light of Christ Jesus. Job wishes that he had never come from the darkness of the womb into the light of day. That it never happened. He wishes the night of his birth was barren. That he never came forth from the womb. That there were never any shouts of joy at his birth. He even goes as far as to wish that the day, the very day he was born on, that day would be stricken from the calendar altogether. The day of his birth he wished that it never even existed. He wants this day completely wiped out. But he takes it a step further and says, I wish I was never conceived in the first place. So the pain he's in, both emotional and physical, has driven him to the point where he wishes that his very existence in this life was wiped completely out. Because if he never existed, then the pain he's going through right now wouldn't exist either. And we can understand that, can't we? We can understand that because... We've all experienced emotional and physical pain that we just wish would stop. No matter how that happened, we just wish it would stop. People find ways to make it stop, don't they? I mean, the ultimate way is to make it stop for good. I was speaking to someone the other day who had pain in their back so bad, so severe, that they needed to drink just to be able to go to sleep. They wanted the pain to stop, so they numbed themselves so that the pain would stop, and they used alcohol to do that. And that's what most people use today is drugs and alcohol to numb the pain that they're in, wishing that it would stop by numbing it. And, of course, we know that doesn't work because once the numbness wears off, the pain is still there. And for those who end the pain for good, you may have ended the pain in your life, but you've just passed the pain on to someone else. The pain really doesn't go away by any of those means. People today, though, want to feel as if they don't exist, so they use drugs and alcohol to anesthetize themselves, to dull the pain so it feels like they don't exist. But all we really do is just pass that pain on to someone else in our life who loves us. Look at verses 8 through 10. May those cursed who curse today those who are ready to arouse Leviathan, may the stars of its morning be dark, may it look for light but have none, and not see the dawning of the day, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. And we'll stop there. So this, to show us how deep 
and how gnawing his grief is, he says something that I'm sure he regrets saying later, and how many of us have ever been in pain and grief and said things that we regretted later? So Job calls upon the, the magicians and the sorcerers, the soothsayers, they that curse, they that curse. And he calls, the, them, he calls upon them to even bring a curse upon the day he was born. And he says the Leviathan, which is a large sea creature, and we're going to meet him again in, in chapter 41. But it seems here that Job is saying, let the sorcerers call up, let them summon the one who causes chaos in the sea, this great sea creature. And, and I'm really not sure why he would say that, why he would bring up this specific point. But in the context of his lament, in the context of what he's saying, perhaps he's wishing that this large sea creature would somehow be unleashed and just blot out his birth altogether. But here's the problem for Job. The day of his birth did dawn. He did come forth from his mother's womb. His, womb, his mother's womb was not shut up, and therefore he is suffering. Look at verses 11 through 13. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me, and why did the breast that I should nurse? For now it would have lain, now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would not have, I would have been at rest. So now he's saying, since my day did dawn, since I was born, I wish now that I had died in childbirth. He's trying to cover all the bases. Why was I born? Why was I even allowed to nurse at my mother's breast? And what he's really asking, why did I even receive nourishment after I was born so that I survived? Had he died at birth in childbirth, he would be at rest right now in the grave. This is his logic. And it's okay. It's okay when we're in the frame of mind to ask, what's my purpose on this earth? But make sure you do it in the right frame of mind. Job's questioning his purpose, but it's okay for us to say, why am I here? For what purpose was I born? Anybody ever asked that question? Why are we here? Why do we exist, right? That's this, this, the theory that everybody has. Why do I exist? Why does life even exist? And by asking those questions, it can help give us a better understanding of why we're here. Why God didn't just bring some of us home when we called upon the name of Jesus and accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our purpose here on this earth, listen, our purpose here on this earth is to, anybody know the answer to this question? Glorify God. That's our purpose here on this earth. In Genesis we learn that, so God created man in his image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. We were created in the image of God. And one commentator put it like this, and I love this, this picture, to image forth, to image forth God. In other words, so people see God in us. And that hopefully what, when they see God in us, God is glorified through that. But that is our purpose here on this earth, to glorify God. So if you were wondering, you don't have to spend money on a psychiatrist. The answer is to glorify God. So he says, and I would have been at rest with the kings and the counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves, or the princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child? 
like infants who never saw light. Then the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There are prisoners, there are pri there the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and the great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Now he's looking at the grave as being a welcome place other than life itself. And he asks, why, why am I not in the grave like all the kings and the princes who have lived good lives, who have prospered in their lives, and now they rest in peace in the grave? Because he's saying, he's making the point that there in the grave, even the prisoners, even the wicked find rest in the grave. And so Job is viewing the grave as a place of rest. He's also viewing it as a great equalizer. The great and the small, the rich and the, pure, the poor, rather, the powerful and lowly, all have one thing in common, don't they? All of us, our resting place is going to be a two and a half by eight foot grave. That's where we all, no matter how big your house is in this life, no matter how, many wealth, how much wealth and riches you have, we all wind up in the same place. The Bible tells us that from dust we were born, right? And then into what we return? Dust. So before you start thinking too highly of yourselves, you're just a big pile of dust sitting in this chair this morning. But listen, the grave for somebody who doesn't know the Lord or doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ is anything but a place of rest. Without Jesus, there is no rest because when you come forth on the day of judgment, you're going to face the wrath of God and that is not a very restful place to be at all, is it? Look at verses 20 through 23. Job longs to die now. Why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter of soul, who long for death but it does not come, and search for it more than the hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? purpose for us as we've already talked about in this world is to show the glory of God to others as he shines through us and when we worship or praise God in the midst of a storm in our lives his works are revealed in us aren't they we bring glory to God by the way we react and act through that storm people see his strength in us people see his peace in us people even see his joy revealed to us when we should be crumbled up on the floor somewhere, just crumbled up in a fetal position. But people see the strength of God. It's not our strength. People see the, the peace of God. It's not our peace. People see the joy of God in us. It's not our joy. So our life in Christ does have meaning. It does have purpose. Even our suffering in this life has meaning and purpose. Our meaning and purpose in all of that is to bring glory and honor to God. All of it, even in the storms, even in the pain, even in the suffering, our purpose in this life is to bring glory and honor to the Lord. Amen? For my sign comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water, for the things I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. 
Job's torn up inside. Can you tell? Do you get that? I know that feeling. Anybody else know that feeling? To be torn up inside? To experience profound loss? It, it, when you feel a loss like that, it's like having your insides ripped out. And that's why he's torn up. Job says, for the thing that I greatly feared came upon me. And what I dreaded the most has happened to me. What's your greatest fear in this life? What's the thing that you dread the absolute most? And then think about for a minute. Think about what would happen, what you would do if that fear was realized. I know every parent in this room, I know what your greatest fear is. And I pray that that never is realized in your lives. I don't pray that for anybody. Job prayed for his children daily. Daily. And he was concerned as he prayed for them that something like this would happen. And now his greatest fear has been imagined. Listen, life changes when you lose a child. You no longer fear your own death. Death has changed. You see death in a different way now. You think... Listen, the worst has already happened. What else can happen? There's nothing else that can hurt me. The, the greatest pain in the life of a, of a parent is their loss of a child. And when you've experienced that pain, there's nothing else that can hurt you as deeply as that did. And Job has been experienced, he is experiencing the worst storm of his life. So when the future storms come in his life, they won't be as threatening as this one was. Because he's already experienced the greatest pain he could ever experience. But this storm, sadly, isn't over. He's about to receive some very bad, some unsolicited advice from his friends. Advice that's going to call into question Job's very relationship with God. So let's look at Eliphaz, the first friend of Job, who opens his mouth. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? So he's asking. He's asking, Hey, listen, Job, if I ask you a question, is that going to bother you? But then listen to what he says right after that. But who can withhold from speaking? So first he asks permission to speak, and he says, Listen, I can't shut up even if you told me to. It's like when Shrek said to Donkey, he said, You have the you have, you have the right to stop speaking. What you lack is the ability. And that is certainly true of our friend Eliphaz. He can stop speaking, but he lacks the ability to do so. And whereas we're going to read through this, we're going to discover that it would have been much better for Job had he kept his mouth closed. Look at verses 3 through 6. Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weakened hands, your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you're weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? And what he's saying to Job is, you've counseled others through times like this. You've lifted them up when they were failing just by your wise counsel. You've been there when trial befalls others. So now when this trial befalls you, when these things come upon you, you're having difficulty. You're struggling with this. What's the matter with you, Job? Can't you even accept your own counsel? 
guy's got a lot of empathy, doesn't he? But there's counselors out there just like this, isn't there? Christian counselors, Christian people, Christian brothers and sisters who mean well, they have good hearts, they mean well, but their counsel sounds just like this. Where's your confidence in God? Where's your hope, he asks. You know, I love that hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, and it goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Our hope, our confidence is in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. By the shedding of his blood, we've been forgiven. And we are confidently assured, because of his death and resurrection, of our own resurrection upon our death. Because he lives, we will live. That's where our confidence is. That's where our hope is. <coughs> Job isn't there yet. Job isn't there yet. And please understand that. That when we're ministering to someone who's gone through a great loss, when we're ministering to someone who's grieving, they're not, they may not be ready to hear all things happen for good for those who love God and those who are called to his purpose. Although that is a wonderful truth of scripture. When Dina died, if someone had said to me one more time she's in a better place, I don't know how I would have reacted to that. I thank God that no one ever said that again. Countless number of people. Yes, she was in a better place. Yes, she was. Yes, your child's in a better place. But there's no better place than here with us, right? In our mind, from our perspective. So people who are grieving, people who are going through a loss like that, they may not be ready to hear this. Somewhere down the road, maybe, but not now. Eventually, Job says in chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I will see God. So Job gets there eventually, that his confidence, that his hope is in the resurrection. Look at verse 7 through 8. Remember now, whoever perished, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where are the upright ever cut off, meaning killed? That, that, that phrase, cut off, means killed. Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So, Eliphaz is a know-it-all. He's seen it all. He's never seen a situation where the innocent suffer. He's never seen a situation where the innocent die. He's always seen it the other way around, that the wicked are punished, that the wicked die. So what he's saying to Job is, his good friend, he's comforting him. He's saying, hey, you know, Job, you know what? You must have done something to displease God, and that's why your children are dead. That's why your home is in ruins. That's why you've lost your business. You must have sinned. You must have done something to displease God. Because he's saying the innocent don't suffer, the wicked do. And Eliphaz's experience, his experience, tells him that whoever sows evil will reap evil. Whoever sins will suffer the consequences of sin. Is that a true statement? Whoever sins will suffer the consequences of sin? That's probably one of the best, truest statements he's made so far. It's true, right? Paul says the wages of sin is death. 
If we sin, we know we suffer the consequences of sin. But there's one thing wrong with Eliphaz's statement. This trial that Job went through wasn't because of the consequences of his sin or his children's sin. This trial that he's going through is a test, and the test means to prove by trial. When God allows our faith to be tested, it shows us a couple different things, doesn't it? First, that our faith is stronger than we thought it was. That we're able, we are able to bear up under trial. And second, maybe, that our faith is weaker than we thought it was. And that it needs to be strengthened so that we can endure future trials in our life. Because, listen, as one very wise person said, we're either in the midst of a trial, we're just coming out of a trial, or we're heading into a trial. A faith that has not been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lion are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. So he's saying by the mere breath of God, God can destroy his enemies. He's just got to go, and you're done. The lions who prey upon their victims, and you have to look at it from the, the context of what he's saying. He's using the lions as a descriptive form of the wicked. That they grow old, that they're wicked, they grow old, that their teeth fall out, that they break and fail. They just, they get old. They perish for lack of food. Both young and old lion, which Eliphaz again uses to describe the wicked, come to the same end. They all come to the same end. They all come to death. We all come to the same end, don't we? Listen, death is 100% among human beings. Did you know that? No one gets out of this life alive. And his argument is that the wicked perish, but the righteous are blessed. That God kills the wicked, but saves the innocent. That's a messed up theology, isn't it? Asva, the, in the Psalms, David was the only one that wrote the Psalms, complained the opposite way. He said that the wicked seemed to prosper but that the innocent suffer. He wrote, So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. And then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. His eyes were opened, that although they were blessed on this earth, although they seemed to prosper, in the end, their end would be destruction. They're not going to be blessed in all eternity. They're going to suffer the consequences of their sin, and the consequences of their sin is the wrath of God. Now a word was secretly brought to me. I love this. I love this. The Lord spoke to me. The Lord gave me this word for you. And my ear received the whisper of it. In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when the deep sleeps when the deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me, and I was trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. My hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice saying, 
Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? Listen, not all dreams, not all dreams are of the Lord, are they? Not every angel is an angel of light. This spirit that he talks about, not every spirit is from God. The spirit, this one, that he talks about in his dream brought what? Fear and dread. Is that biblical? God says, I didn't give you a spirit of fear, but one of power, of love, and of a sound mind. So if this dream is bringing him fear and dread, it's not of the Lord. And Eliphaz no doubt experienced an encounter with, a, with the spiritual realm, but it wasn't from God. And we listen, we have to be careful of the voice we're listening to, because when God speaks to us, even in dreams and visions, and I do believe that we can have dreams and visions. I don't believe that's out. It's in the Bible, isn't it? They're not all from the Lord. If it doesn't match up with his word, as God speaks to us, then his, his counsel to us through that dream or vision is actually undermining his word, and that's not the Lord. It has to match his word. Amen? Let me just finish up chapter 4. If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in a house of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth, are broken in pieces from morning till evening, they perish forever with no one regarding, does not their own ex excellence go away? They die even without wisdom. You know, Job never have a job as a motivational speaker. Which of the angels, Job says, or Eliphaz says to Job, which of the angels can help you, Job? Who's going to stand before you? Who's going to be your intercessor in heaven? Who's going to stick up for you? Who sticks up for us? Who's our intercessor? Jesus Christ. He sits on the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us as the enemy stands there day and night, the Bible tells us, accusing us, pointing us out, saying, hey, listen, your servant so-and-so did this today, said this today. And Jesus is actually there defending us. And then he says one of the cruelest things he could have said to Job. From his own personal experience, Eliphaz says, I've seen the foolish, I've seen sinners punished. I've seen sinners take root, sin take root in a person, and because of their sin, they're destroyed. They lose everything their house, their family, believe they're safe, but because the head of the household has taken root in sin, sin has taken root in his life, they're not safe. Because of the foolish actions of the head of the household, destruction will come upon them. And he's referencing Job here. He's telling Job, this is all your fault. They're left to come to the gates, the places where the judges sit. They're crushed without defense, meaning... You're guilty and you have no defense. What a cruel choice of words he uses here, that Job's children, who are not accused of any sin, are crushed to death. Did we read chapter 5? Oh, that's why you're not making any sense of this. So let's back up. 18, uh, chapter 4. Um, Eliphaz says, if God can't find any wrongdoing among his angels, now we're back in the right ballpark. 
how much easier it would be to find wrong in humans, right? Makes sense. If he finds wrong in his own angels, how much, how much easier is it to, for him to find wrong in us? And he has no idea that the angel who fell from God's grace is the one who's brought all this trouble upon Job. He's responsible. Satan's responsible for what's happened to Job. It's not a consequence of Job's sin. It's what the enemy did to him. But he's listening to this dream he's had. And the Spirit's asking, do humans have the right to question God? That's what he's saying. We are just, and if he was standing here this morning at this pulpit, he'd say, you're just a bunch of insignificant piles of dust sitting here. That's all you are. You're as fragile as a moth. A moth could crush you. That's how delicate your life is. You're alive in the morning and you're dead by evening. Gone without a trace. No one misses you. No one, no one even cares. No one regards you. Is that true? Compared to God, he's saying you're weak. You're weak. You're nothing. Your life is but a vapor. You're here to God and gone. You're here today and gone tomorrow. Your life is a vapor. We are insignificant to God. Is that true? The psalmist wrote. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you should visit him? Psalm 8, verse 4. God loves us. He loves us so much. If we were such insignificant piles of dust sitting here in a chair, would he have even bothered to send his son, his only begotten son, to die for our sin? God loved us that much. He thought we were that important. He looked at every one of our faces as Jesus went to the cross and saw every single one of us and said, no matter what you're doing, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter where you are, no matter how long you've been there, you are worth my shedding of my blood for you. You are not insignificant. Not to God. In God's eyes, we are the most important because he sent his son to die for our sin. Amen? Now we'll try and make some sense of this. Chapter 5. Call out now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones, talking about the angels now, will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man. And envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but someday, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer because the hungry eat up the harvest. Taking it, even from, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So Eliphaz now in chapter 5 continues his accusations against Job. And he's saying, again, is the, is God will not, if he finds error in his angels, how much more so you insignificant piles of dust. And of course, he's asking Job, who's your intercessor? Who's going to stand up for you in all of this? Who's going to come to your defense? And you know what? Well, he can't see now, but he's going to find out to his own. He's going to find out later on that God comes to Job's defense. For us, God does intercede for us. God the Son intercedes for us every day. 
But from his own personal experience, Eliphaz is saying, I've seen sin take root in people. I've seen them. The whole family's destroyed because of the sin take root. Is that a true statement? Think about that. We've all seen sin take root in people. Maybe the father of the house, the mother of the home. Does it, can it destroy a whole family? Does Satan use one person in a family to destroy and to reach out and branch out and destroy many other people in that family? Absolutely he does. That's one of his all-time favorite techniques. And Eliphaz is saying, I've seen that happen. I've seen sin take root in foolish people and it destroy them. And that is absolutely true. But he's using this in the cruelest sense of the, way, of the word because Job's children were never accused of any sin. Do we read of any sin that they were accused of? Job prayed because they may have sinned, but it doesn't tell us that they did sin. And so he proceeds to tell Job, trouble just doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't just spring up from the ground. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly to the fire. Now, have you ever lit a fire outside? Where do the sparks go? It's a natural progression, right? It happens naturally. And what he's saying is that destruction happens to mankind naturally because you've sinned. So again, he's accusing Job. You must have some hidden sin in your life that has brought such suffering upon your family. What a way to talk to a guy who's just lost ten children and all that he owns. Look at verse 8 of chapter 5. But as for me, I would seek God. Righteous Eliphaz, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He, lets the high, he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he who saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hand, so the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. So now he's saying, why don't you go to God? Why don't you just confess your sin, Job, and God will forgive you your sin? God's good, amen? God's good all the time, no? He's merciful. He's full of grace. In fact, the Bible tells us his mercies are renewed every day. So just go to him. Just get on your knees, Job. Fall on your knees and ask God for forgiveness. Confess your sin to him, and he will forgive you and restore you. Probably this is the best advice that Eliphaz has given Job so far. And we know it's good advice because the Bible tells us, right, that if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. That is the key to the Christian walk. Anyone here sin? We all do, right? So keeping short accounts with God... We confess our sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One point on the good side of counsel for Eliphaz, and it's probably in this message the only point he's going to get today. Verses 19 through 27 of chapter 5. He shall deliver you six, you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, though evil shall, evil shall touch you. 
In famine he shall redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. Well, not so far that's not working out. And you shall not be afraid of the destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine. And you shall not be afraid of the beast of the earth, for you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field and the beast of the field and shall be at peace and be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall know that your descendants shall be many and that your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at full age as a sheaf of grain ripens in season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. And again, he's saying, if you confess your sin to the Lord, if you turn over a new leaf on life, if you go to the Lord and just lay it all out to him and he forgives you, then he's going to restore you. That you're going to go to your grave at a ripe old age, that all of what you've lost will be destroyed. And he paints a very poetic picture here, doesn't he? Those words are beautiful, but are they correct? When you look deeper into his words, you discover that he's saying, let's make a deal, Job. Make a deal with God. Make a deal with God. If you confess your sins, he's going to restore everything you've lost. Isn't that kind of what Satan said? If you take everything, he only loves you because of what you've given him. If you take it all away from him, he's going to curse you. Had Job done that, he would have proven Satan's accusation against him true. That Job only not only Job, but all of mankind, only loves God for what he's blessed them with. So we confess our sin just so God will continue to bless us, is what he's saying. Is that why we confess our sin? Why do we confess our sin? To restore a relationship with, Jesus, with God, right? Which is broken in our sin. We don't lose our salvation, but our relationship with him suffers. We confess our sin to restore that relationship, not so that he blesses us. And so this presents a very skewed doctrine, that the godly are rewarded, because that's been his argument throughout, right? The godly are rewarded. Those who have faith, those who do the right thing, are rewarded. And rewarded how? With material blessing. Isn't that the world today? We want to be blessed with material blessings. Anybody here turn down a material blessing from the Lord? I wouldn't. <laughs> if you're pouring them out, Lord, I'm here. We would never turn that down, but you can't make a doctrine out of that. You can't make that theology. Because there's some who believe that if your faith is strong enough, you will be healthy. You will have possessions. And, and basically what he's saying to Job is if your faith, if, you're right, if your relationship was right with God, you would not have lost everything you own. Isn't it? Isn't that what he's saying to him? Is that true? That's saying that the righteous shouldn't suffer and the wicked should. I've seen the righteous suffer. I don't know about you. Jesus said in this world you'll have tribulations. You'll have trials. You'll go through stuff. You're going to be tested. John 16, 33. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, all that desire to live, listen to this, all who desire, you guys desire to live a godly life? Well, maybe you should rethink that, because look what he says next. You desire to live a godly life, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be persecuted. 
you're going to be persecuted. That doesn't sound like the righteous don't suffer to me. Does that sound like it to you? Our faith does not preclude us from suffering. If anything, it opens up our, it opens, our faith opens us up to be tested. Amen? It opens the door for these things to happen to us. So now, in chapter 6, 6 and 7, we're going to look at Job's response to Eliphaz's words. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words have been rash. For the, hours, the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And what he's saying is, I'm weighed down. I'm weighed down by this trouble. My burden is heavy. This is why Job wishes he ne was never born. He can't take the pressure. This, have you ever been involved in something where it just feels like the weight of the world is hitting on your shoulders? This, and he describes it as being heavier than sand. And if you've ever been there, it feels that way, doesn't it? That you're just being crushed. This is getting to me, he's saying. It's like God has shot poison arrows in me that has knocked me down and infected my spirit. This is how he feels. Look at verses 5 to 7. Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or does the ox low over its fodder? Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? No, the answer to that question is no. Or is there any taste in it in a white of an egg? Actually, there is. My soul refuses to touch them. They are as loathsome food to me. So Job doesn't like eggs. We learned something new this morning. Listen, he's saying, I have a right to complain. I have a right to complain. God created the wild donkeys, didn't he? And when they can't find any grass to eat, don't they complain to God? Don't the oxen who God created complain when they have no food? Don't people complain about insignificant things like seasoning for their food and the taste of a, of a tasteless egg? We do, don't we? We complain about everything. You guys are complaining it's too cold in here right now. Let that be a lesson to you. And he's saying if animals and people complain about such trivial, temporary things, then I have a right to complain because compared to what they're complaining about, my complaint is I've lost everything. He's got a point, doesn't he? But in a much deeper sense, Job is saying, I'm losing my taste for this life. Life does no longer interest me. Look at verses 8 through 13. Oh, that I might have a request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. That he would kill me, is what Job's asking for. That he, Then I would still have comfort. Though in anguish, I would exalt. He would not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones, or my flesh the flesh of bronze? 
is my help not within me? And is success driven from me? And what he's saying, and I've said this many times to God myself, God, I think you think that my shoulders are bigger than I think they are. He's saying, God, do you think that I'm really as impenetrable as a rock? That I'm in, as impervious to pain as a bronze shield? That I don't feel this? That I don't know what's going on? I'm weakened, he's telling God. I'm weakened from carrying the weight of all this torture and torment upon my shoulders. It's crushing me, Lord. So listen, why don't you just speed up the process and crush me now? Just take me, just kill me. I have to tell you, and I'm not, I've prayed that prayer. And anyone who's really experienced a deep loss has prayed, Lord, take me too. And that's really what Job is saying. Take me home, Lord. Take me too. But he's also saying, despite my physical pain, despite my emotional pain, I have not denied the words of God. But he's also saying, I don't know how much longer I can hold out, Lord. I don't know how much longer I can hold on. I'm holding on by a thread. And I know there's people in this building this morning who feel that way right now, that they're just holding on by a thread. I'm helpless, he's saying. This situation is not going to get any better for me. I've reached the limits, Lord, of my endurance. I can't take this anymore. Ever felt like that? Like you're just holding on by a thread that you've reached the end of, your, of the limits of your endurance? And the Holy Spirit reminds us through his servant Paul that no temptation has overtaken you except that is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That word in the Greek means testing. Testing. No testing will come upon you that you cannot bear up against it. And that's why I pray, Lord, sometimes I think you think my shoulders are much bigger than I believe they are. But if the Lord brings us to it, the Lord will bring us through it. Amen? God is going to strengthen you. You may not think you have the strength to endure what others have endured. You may think if that ever happened to me, I would just crumble and die. And what the Lord's saying to you is, I will, you personally, in your own strength, don't have the strength to do this. But I will strengthen you. I will give you the strength to endure. To him, verse 14, who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend. Absolutely, Job, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away, which are dark because of the ice and into which the snow vanishes. When it is warm, they cease to flow. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their way turn aside, and they go nowhere and perish. So I want you to think of a stream now, of a brook. The path is the path of the stream and the brook. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope for them, but they are disappointed because they were confident they came there and are confused. For now you are nothing. You see terror and are not afraid. And what he's saying is, 
it's pretty funny, actually. I know he uses some really poetic words here, but down deep down inside what he's saying is, it would have been nice, my friend, if you were just a little kinder, a little gentler with me, a little bit more empathetic, a little bit more understanding. No? I think so, right? But your advice is as useless to me as a dried-up riverbed. That the travelers and the caravans come upon expecting to find water, and in this case it would be wisdom, right? Expecting to find some kind of wisdom, some kind of comfort, but are confused because there is none. There's none. You have been no help to me in my distress, distress Job says. Please don't be an Eliphaz counselor. We will never have a class on Eliphaz counseling. And he's saying, are you, are you fearful that I'm going to ask for your help? That I'm going to ask you for a handout? And then he says in verse 22, did I ever say bring, me, bring something to me or offer a bribe for me from your wealth? Or deliver me from the enemy's hand or redeem me from the hand of the oppressors? Teach me and I will hold my, my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forceful are right words. But what does your arguing prove? Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of the desperate one which are as wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. And so he's asking him, Eliphaz, have I ever asked you for anything at all? Are you that heartless, Eliphaz, that you would sell an orphan into slavery or even sell a friend to a slave trader? Is, are that, is that how heartless you are? In other words, he's saying to Eliphaz, to all his friends who are sitting there listening to this, you guys are despicable. And so let's finish up chapter 6. But how forceful are right words, but what does your argument prove? Do you tend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one, which are as wind? Yes, you over overwhelm the fatherless and undermine your friend. Now, therefore, be pleased to look at me, for I would never lie to your face. Yield now, let there be no injustice. Yes, concede my righteousness still stands. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory. And Job is saying to him, you've claimed, you've made all these accusations that I have sin in my life. And I tell you that I have no unconfessed sin in my life. Listen, there's a difference. I remember walking out the door at Calvary Chapel, Old Bridge one day, and the assistant pastor at the time said to me, do you have any unconfessed sin in your life? And he stopped me in my tracks. And I had to think for a minute and that there was a key word in there, un, unconfessed, because if he asked me if I had sin in my life, I'd have to say yes, and that would have been the end of it. Unconfessed sin. Have you confessed your sin? Do you keep short accounts with God? Job confessed whatever sin. The Bible never says Job was sinless. It never says that. It just says he did the right thing when everyone else was doing the wrong thing. He's just a good guy. But it didn't say he was sinless. Job has confessed the sin in his life. There is no unconfessed sin in his life. Job has kept short accounts with God. Listen, we all sin. And it's so important as to keep that relationship with our Lord maintained by keeping short accounts with him. 
by going to him when we sin, by confessing that sin and asking for his forgiveness. And listen, if you've got to do that 100 times a day, do it 100 times a day. Eventually you'll get tired of it and you'll stop sinning. But do it whenever you need it. That 1 John 1, 9, the text there in the Greek is continuous. Continuously go to him. Continuously confess your sin and he will always be faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So Job can't understand why he's gone through all of this, why this has happened to him. And, and maybe there's a little part of Job that he even believes that this is a punishment for God for something. He can't figure out what it is, but he's being punished for something. Look at chapter 7. Is there not a time of hand, a time of hard service rather for man on earth? Are not his days also like the days of a hired man, like a servant who earnestly desires the shade, and like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility, and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be ended? For I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. There is a beautiful poetic description of what he looks like. Every day, Job says, is a struggle. Every day, life is filled with disappointment and hardships. We're always looking for comfort, right? We're longing for comfort, just like the worker who longs for shade or the coolness of a tree in the hot, dusty day of work. Just like the servant who's, the worker who's looking for the security of a paycheck. We're always looking for comfort and security in our lives. And Job says now how long this has been going on. This has been going on for months. And we think this happens pretty, in a, in a pretty rapid progression, right? The disaster happens, Job winds up in the ash heap in the garbage dump, he's scraping his boils, a friend's come. We're thinking days, weeks maybe. But Job says this has been going on for months. For months I've been suffering. So it kind of gives you an idea of how the distance his friends must have had to travel to get here, right? He's saying the nights are long. Ever heard that saying that the darkest hour is just before dawn? Anybody that's ever waited through a sick night with sick kids? Ever gotten up in the middle of the night with a sick kid? Usually that involves being thrown up on first and then you wake up. But getting through that night seems like the longest night on the face of the earth, doesn't it? And then it's the dawn is always, it's always darkest before the dawn. It's always the darkest before the light shines in. And the same is true of our lives before Jesus Christ, right? We were at our darkest moment before the light of Christ shone upon it. It seems like an eternity waiting for the light in the midst of a darkness, especially when you're sick, especially when you're going through something. Because the day makes everything look different, doesn't it? I know in the rail yard, when we train guys, we train them in the day first, and then we train them at night. Because that yard, although they've been used to it now, in the daylight, looks completely different at night. Same yard. Everything's in the same place, but it looks completely different at night, and you have to get adjusted to that. So things look different in the day. They just look brighter. They just look more promising, don't they? And that's what Job's saying. I can't wait to get through this because on the other end, there's light. 
Maybe it's a little bit more promising. He's in bad shape right now. His body's racked with pain. All these boils that he has, some of them are being infected. I wish I had pictures. Some of them are oozing, scabbed over. You getting, you feeling Job now? Are you feeling him? You feeling his pain? Some of them have even developed maggots. Have you ever put the garbage out with some meat in it? And on a hot summer day, a couple days later, you go to move it? That's a pleasant smell, isn't it? I don't think Job's a very pleasant guy to be around right now. And to add to his physical pain and his emotional pain is the pain of embarrassment. Because he doesn't look very good, and he doesn't smell very good. And all of this is going on in his life. And now he's beginning to question why. Look at verse 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. Now, a weaver's shuttle is, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't understand that in today's culture, but it goes back and forth, back and forth as you weave on the weaver, as you're weaving cloth or whatever you're weaving. And Job's complaining that his life is like that. It's like a weaver's shuttle. It's just going from one day to the next, from one day to the next. His life is passing him by is what he's saying. Pain can do that to us. One minute it feels like an eternity, and the next minute it feels like it's a blur. He's saying there's no purpose in my life. There's, there, my life makes no sense now. It doesn't make any sense. There's, there's no end in sight to this misery. All that my life is, and from Job's perspective, all that his life is at this point is misery and suffering. He's saying my life is but a breath. My days are filled with hopelessness and despair. There is no hope. There is no happiness. And so we can see that Job is in a severe state of depression. Now we can argue with Job and say there is hope in Christ Jesus. That life isn't all despair and pain and suffering. But I don't think he'd believe us at this point. And so the best thing to do in a case like this is just love him. Love him. And wait and hope and pray that that day will come when the door opens for you to have that conversation. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I am a sea or a sea serpent. Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. So that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone for my days are but a breath. So Job is saying, I just need to get this off my chest. I just need to say this. Have you ever sat and listened to a friend who's really gone through some really difficult times and listened to them talk like this? You may not like to hear it, but it's very cathartic for them. It's very healing for them to get it off their chest. 
they may not even believe the words that are coming out of their mouth, but they need to get that out. They need to, to spew that out of their mouths to get it out of them so that they can see things a lot clearer and a lot, di- and a lot differently later on. And this is a good sign, actually, because it means that healing is actually starting to take place in Job. Speaking about our trials, speaking about our pain is comforting. And just knowing that there's someone else, a good friend, a buddy, who's willing to sit and listen to us is comforting. And Job unloads here. But who he's unloading upon is God. And listen, God has big shoulders. God can sit and listen to you unloading on him, unleashing on him. God will listen. God is always there. You can always pour out your trouble to him. And he's never going to condemn you for it. And he's asking God, did I do something so bad, so bad that you look at me like I'm some kind of monster, that you have to form a guard over me? I can't even find rest and peace when I sleep. My dreams haunt me. My, my fears, my fears have been rele- realized here. Listen, there are things that happen in this life, things that we see that cannot be unseen. Vivid images that cannot be erased from our minds. Images that we continue to see once we close our eyes. I think of our military and our first responders. They've seen things, they've seen horror that they will never unsee. That when they close their eyes, they continue to see those things. Images that will never be erased. And how that affects them. How it affects them spiritually, mentally, even physically. How it keeps them from finding true rest and peace. How they fear even closing their eyes. Those who suffer from a debilitating depression like that need to seek counsel. And listen, there's nothing more important than a good buddy, a good friend who's there just to listen, just to sit and listen, just to be there. That can make all the difference in the world for somebody who's suffering. There's no greater hearing, healing rather, than when we give all our fears. Having a good buddy, having a someone, a good friend sit by with us and and go through this with us is wonderful. It's healing. It's helpful. But there's no greater healing than when we lay that at the feet of Jesus Christ. All our fears, all our nightmares, our darkest thoughts, our greatest depression. And we give that to the Lord and ask him to take that. Ask him to relieve that burden from us. To ask the great physician to take us by the hand and lead us back into the light. Amen. Look at verse 17. 17, right up into the end. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Now, he's not saying this to Eliphaz. He's saying this to God. Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. What have I done to deserve this? What have I done to deserve all this suffering and pain? And that's a question that many of us have asked of God, isn't it? 
when we're going through something. What have I done? What sin did I commit? What did I do to deserve this? Well, let's ask that question. Let's look at that in closing. What did we do to deserve any of this? Well, for one, sickness, suffering, and death are all a result of sin, isn't it? It's all a consequence of sin when Adam brought sin into this world, and we're not going to blame Adam for this because any one of us would have eaten that apple. We were talking about that the other day in men's group, right? There's probably thousands of trees in that garden. There's Twinkie trees. There's cupcake trees. There's every tree you can imagine. And God says, just don't eat of this one tree. And what's the one tree? And that tree had lemons on it. What's the one tree that Adam got up every morning and wanted to eat more than any other tree in the land? That tree. And it's uh, you and I, we're all the same. So we can't blame Adam because if any one of us was put in the same position, we'd all eat of the lemon tree. Absolutely. Yes, you could tell your friends that the pastor said it was a lemon tree, not an apple. So through the fall, sickness and death closely followed on its heels. So we suffer as a result of the sin that came into this world through Adam, through the fall. Second, suffering also comes upon us as a test of our faith. Our faith is tested, as we said before, to neither show its strength or its weakness. So we may not like to suffer. Anybody in this room like to suffer? If you do, uh, there's counseling available for you. We may not like to suffer. We may not even think we deserve to suffer. But suffering, even suffering in our life, has a purpose. Now, from Satan's perspective, as you can imagine, he has a whole different set of purposes for our suffering. From Satan's purpose in our suffering is to destroy us. That's what his purpose is. And it's revealed here in the book of Job, probably better than anywhere else. First, Satan uses our suffering to attack our body, as he did with Job, to weaken us, to tempt us, to blame God for our suffering. Secondly, Satan will use people in our lives to attack our soul, through bad advice, through harmful theology, to get to us, just as Job's friends did. And then thirdly, Satan can use the silence of God to break our spirit, to question God, to doubt if he's even committed to us, just as Job did with God. So Satan's purpose in our suffering is to attack our body, soul, and spirit, to completely and totally break us down. But God also has a purpose in our trials and our suffering. First, God allows suffering in our lives to help deepen our relationship with him. Job will get to that point as we go through this book. Job will say, I've only heard of the Lord before, but now I've seen him. My relationship was just on the surface, but now it's so much deeper. And so the Lord will use suffering in our lives to deepen our relationship with him, to draw us even closer to him. Second, God will use the suffering in our lives as an inspiration to others to help others through trials, to comfort them as we have been comfort, comforted. And then third, God allows suffering in our life to show the enemy that God ha doesn't have to buy the love of his, of his children, that we love God for who he is, not for how he blesses us. Amen? Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church 
to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So look who he's saying. That the manifold wisdom, that, that, and that, that word manifold means multicolored, like Joseph's uh, technicolor dream coat, you know, the coat of many colors. God's wisdom throughout the body of Christ is multi. It's multicolored. It's multi-talented. It's multifaceted. We have all different kinds of churches, all different shapes, all different sizes, and all of it is to show the principalities in the heavens, the heavenly places, Satan and his fallen angels, the glory of God. The glory of God through his church, through believers, through followers. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, God's eternal purpose Jesus Christ, even God's purpose. Because what did Jesus say right after he said, in this world you will have tribulation? He said, I have overcome this world. There's nothing in that that this life can throw at us, no pain, no suffering, no trial, that will keep us from God's divine purpose for our lives. Which ultimately is to spend all eternity with him, isn't it? So suffering isn't always a result of sin. Sometimes it's a result of righteousness. Let me say that again. Suffering isn't always a result of our sin, although sometimes it is, right? Suffering is sometimes a result of righteousness. Suffering in a believer should always cause us to ask, what are you showing me through this? What are you showing me? What are you showing me? grow from this Satan wants our suffering to destroy us he wants us to draw it away from God and for some it has that effect but God wants to use our suffering even our suffering to draw us closer to him to help us grow in our faith so if you belong to God if you're one of his children the only answer for us is to draw closer to him especially during times of trial and guess what what does the Bible tell us? When we draw close to him, where does the enemy go? He flees. He flees. Amen? Let's stand. Lord, we thank you that just drawing close to you, Lord, just being near you causes our enemy to flee. So, Lord, as we draw nearer to you, especially in the midst of our trials, Lord, the enemy would flee from us. And, Lord, it would leave us just you and, and us, Lord, just us in our relationship with you. There's nothing more precious in this world than that. So go before your children here this morning, Lord. May you strengthen us and give us wisdom. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.